Hello and welcome back to We Are History. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. Oh, uh-huh. See what we did there. <laughs> Angela has chosen this week's topic and we're going to go World War II because you know what she's like. She's absolutely obsessed with Spitfires and Nazis. <laughs> yeah, that's my thing. Battle of Britain. <laughs> and she's like, Dad's Army, massive Dad's Army fan. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh god, I I am excited about this one though because I'm not a World War Two nerd, um, and I'd never heard about this operation that we're talking about today until I was in Berlin before Christmas, and I went to with my husband. We went to Das Deutsche Spionage Museum. Spionage Museum. Spionage das Museum. Ist das? Uh, das ist das. Das is the German spy museum. Actually, I really oh, yes. recommend it if you're going to Berlin with the family. Lots of one of those museums yeah. where there's lots to do, you know. I've been there. I've been there. It's good. It's great. Yeah. I love my favourite bit was um, there's a, a room where it's sort of set up like a East German office, and you've got a, a bug detecting device, and you have to find the bugs. That sounds fun. In the room. It's good fun. Anyway, there were lots of videos and interactive stuff, and because I am at the moment on a project to sort of improve my German. Yeah. I was watching all every little video in the entire place to try and do that. Oh, very good, very good. What fun for one for what fun for Matt to watch you watching videos in German. He, he was loving it. He was loving it. They had the videos were in English as well, so he was watching them in English, I was watching them in German. Okay. But there was one video that really caught my eye and it was just sort of you could easily miss it in the museum. And I'm really glad I didn't because it was something I'd never heard about and it was about these World War 2 Navajo code talkers and i thought okay this is going to make a great we are history episode we'll see about that of course well we will see about that but that does have the added bonus of meaning that my entrance ticket to the museum was now tax deductible so oh, um, fantastic good work good work um it's not there's not a great deal in terms of books written about the navajo code talkers there's a little bit of information online about them there was a memoir written by one of them but it seems virtually impossible to get hold of particularly in the uk the book I read was by Nathan Asseng. Right. And it was sort of aimed at young adult readers. It well, was kind good. of like a that's school good. textbook, really. That's good about for you. my level. Yeah. Yep, thank you, John. <laughs> uh, and it was called, well, it was called Navajo Code Talkers because ah. pretty good title. Yeah. Um, a little note, though, before we carry on, John, the book yeah. that I used, it was written in 1992. Right. Sort of uh, 30-something years ago. And when it comes to talking about indigenous people of America... I wanted to try and make sure that we were getting it right because obviously some of the terminology that was used in this book 30 years ago, maybe not right. used today. So I had a little, it's a little disclaimer at the top of this episode. I did check with the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian right. who say this about the terminology used to describe indigenous people in the Americas. They say American Indian, Indian, Native American, indigenous or native are all acceptable terms. The consensus, however, is that whenever possible, Native people prefer to be called by their specific tribal name. In the United States, Native American has been widely used, but is falling out of favour with some groups, and the terms American Indian or Indigenous American are preferred by many Native people. Native peoples often have individual preferences on how they would like to be addressed, so when talking about Native groups or people, use the terminology the members of the community use to describe themselves collectively. Wow, Angela, you're so racist. You're so just all these words you're using. All these words I'm just bandying (laughs) about. I'm trying to do my best here, John. (laughs) So during this episode, we're going to use the phrase Indigenous American when talking about multiple groups. Right. And obviously Navajo when we're talking about the Navajo people. 
I hope that makes sense. All right. I, yeah, that's good. That's uh, good. If anything slips in from the book that I've read that is no longer the right way of referring to people or the events that happened, it is obviously without intention. It's just the source material we have for this is quite old. It's political correctness gone mad. <laughs> These just, days, you I can't even... I just don't even, want to upset anyone. You can't put Indians on a reservation and rip their children away to send them to oh, boarding school without John. the liberal woke police telling you that it's not politically correct. <laughs> that's right. So, so we are we are kowtowing to the woke lefty <laughs> political correct brigade, John. Yeah, exactly. No, I just I just want to have some sensitivity around a sensitive topic. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. I say there's not much out there about code talkers. They've, they've made films about the Navajo code talkers, uh, but my general advice is to ignore them because they're terrible. Right. Um, the most famous is is a film. I haven't watched it, but I've been reading about it. Oh my god, it looks so bad. It's a film called Wind Talkers. That conjures up a weird image. Right, already. <laughs> Somebody opening their legs after a curry. Oh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a trick. <laughs> oh. it, it basically, what Wind Talkers does, right, it, it stars <laughs> Nicolas Cage. So it takes right. this fascinating story of this group of oppressed indigenous people. It tells the story of what they did to save the skins of the very people that oppressed them and somehow still manages to completely centre the white guy in the story. Of course it does. That's what Hollywood does, isn't it? Isn't it? Just so, depressing. Anyway, so maybe we should say a little bit about who are the Navajos. We've yes. talked a bit about Indigenous Americans uh, in our episode on the occupation of Alcatraz mm -hmm. Island. Uh, but the history of uh, different Indigenous American tribes is so fascinating and so varied. I did a whole uh, term on it at university, actually. Mm. It's really um, so interesting because it's so very different to our own culture. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, but it's so much of it's been wiped out, of course. Yeah. And and so, you know, the, the people that came from different areas of the Americas and migrated to different areas have very different experiences and histories. It's not, there's not a collective yeah. history of the indigenous people. Exactly. Um, and I think it's, it's pretty fair to say, though, that as soon as European settlers started landing in the Americas, it was pretty bad news for all the indigenous people. And the Navajos are no exception to that. Yes. Here come the police. I say it's the politically correct police come to get me. I've got yeah, something yeah, wrong yeah. already, John. <laughs> so, uh, so, John, can you guess what I'm going to do now? Uh, we're going to go back to when America was first, <laughs> uh, was a land, was a Pangaea. It separated out from the land mass of the rest it. of Pangaea. You love it when I go <laughs> yeah. back to oh, a bit of content. To, yeah, you love yeah, it. Go on then, go take us back then. So the Navajos, they originally were from Alaska, northern Canada, and they migrated south in around 1400. Okay. And they settled in an area that is now part of Arizona and New Mexico. So in the sort of southwest yeah. of the states. And they were settled there quite happily, minding their own business, planting crops, raising livestock for a couple of centuries till the Europeans rocked up. And that's when some conflicts began, really. There were conflicts between the Spanish settlers and the Navajos and later between the Navajos and the European, other European Americans. Yes, and Navajo is actually a Spanish word, I think. It's not, a, it's yeah. not what they call themselves. No, absolutely, they're, they're, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Navajos, they, they weren't just one people or one tribe, were they? Especially not at this point. They were made up of many smaller clans, different elders, different leaders, dialects and customs. It's like, a, yeah. it's like saying the Europeans or something. You know? Exactly. Um, there were lots of, yeah. of small yeah. groups of people with yeah. their own leaders. So... The Navajo had had these run-ins with the Spanish and Mexicans, but they first encountered the U.S. Army a little bit later in 1846. 
And that's when right. Santa Fe was invaded as part of the Mexican-American War. I've always wanted to do a podcast on that as well. So that's wow. uh, maybe another one to park down the line. Pop it on the list. Pop but, it on the list. Put it on the list with the 158 other subjects we promised to do podcasts about. <laughs> we're going to be doing this podcast till we're 250 years old, John. And we still won't make any bloody money. <laughs> um, so the, the Americans made some uh, peace treaty with them, didn't they? But the, the problem was that the US didn't really understand that they weren't one people. So they'd make a treaty with one tribal leader and then... The other tribes would ignore it because they hadn't signed it. Yeah. So around this time, many treaties were signed and subsequently ignored. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So so the US was sort of making these demands of these treaties. They're being ignored because they were not doing it in a, in a way that made sense. So by the 1860s, the US really ramped up their plans to control the so-called Navajo people by forcing them basically into surrender or starvation. It's a story of indigenous people all over the place. Uh, you control them by, you know, making their land untenable and starving yes. them, forcing them to yeah. surrender. So they would... Burning their crops, burn and, their, yeah, exactly. destroy their homes. Exactly. and uh, Yeah, terrible. And then terrible. A, a full-scale assault began on the Navajo in 1864. And in the spring, Navajo people were rounded up and forcibly marched 400 miles to a place called Fort Sumner, um, which was basically a concentration camp for re-education to make them more like Europeans. Yes, I read about this. The journey took like three weeks and, and many of the people who'd been starved and homeless were not fit enough for the walk. Yeah. At least 200 people died on the way and awful stories were handed down to the next generation about what happened to them, including being kidnapped by Mexican slavers and people who couldn't keep up, including one story of a pregnant woman being shot. It's all very, very grim. Very grim indeed. Yeah. Um by April 1865, there were about 8,500 Navajo being held at Fort Sumner. One thing that did happen as a result of what they called the Long Walk and the subsequent being held together at Fort Sumner is these previously disparate groups of Navajo did begin to now think of themselves as one nation with this common experience and I guess a common enemy. Yes. So in 1868, the US government granted them back their land on the proviso that they never again fight against the US or New Mexico. It was one of the few cases where the American government allowed indigenous Americans to have reservations on what was their original land. Yeah. You've got 25,000 square miles of arid and semi-desert land. That's probably why the Americans were happy to give it up. Precisely. Yeah. uh, But that's larger than the state of West Virginia. Yeah. and probably because the land was quite arid and dry, uh, yeah, as I say, the US had no use for it. The treaty stipulated that the government would provide adequate schools, ha-ha, and one uh-huh. teacher for every 30 students, and that the Navajos would send their kids to these schools, but neither side really stuck to that pact. And, um, yeah, so thousands of them received no formal education. So it was quite a, an isolated place, the reservation. They weren't, you know, mixing with US society in any way. They held close no. to their own religious rituals. And many Navajo never left the reservation during their lifetimes or had any contact with what they called Belagana, which is those of European extraction. The US government started to set up boarding schools in the late 19th century. Uh, These were often operated, aren't they always, by religious missionaries. Um, And the authorities would insist that the Navajo people would practice Christianity and spoke only English. So Navajo children were sent to these schools to be re-educated um, and they, if they were found speaking Navajo to each other, they would be punished, often having their mouths washed out with lye soap, which is caustic soda. God, the cruelty of it is incredible, isn't it? It's it so cruel. 
Yeah, and it wasn't just the Navajo, this sort of thing happened to. The yeah. Long Walk came after the Trail of Tears, the mass relocation of many other tribes from the southeastern part of the US. Read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee if you want to um, read about uh, this. How did the Navajo people, whose cultural language was so brutally repressed, come then, Angela, yeah. to serve the very government that did this to them? Well, you might be surprised to hear that when World War I came along, many Navajo men signed up to serve for the US. These are the sons and grandsons of those people that did the long walk that, you know, had been at Fort Sumner. They'd heard their tales. And what's more, until 1924, a few years after World War I had ended, Indigenous Americans were not classed as US citizens. So and in the states wow. of Arizona and New Mexico, where the Navajos were, they weren't even allowed to vote after that. So wow. it's impossible, of course, to know why each individual soldier signed up to fight for the US government. But the best guess is that they were protecting their land from an enemy, just like the European American soldiers were. So while in so many ways the US was their adversary, together they had a common enemy during World yeah, War Yeah, maybe. But maybe they just thought a way, they were living in poverty and they thought the army provided a wage and some a way out of their sort yeah. of dire situation on the reservation. Do you think it was a personal sort of advancement agenda maybe, maybe for some of them? Maybe. I, I mean, it's how much they knew about what, opportunity there was in the army they knew very little about how u.s military worked yeah. and stuff so i don't know so skip forward to world war ii in june 1940 which is before america enters the war of course navajo leaders put out a statement that said we resolve that the navajo indians stand ready as they did in 1918 to aid and defend our government and constitution against all subversive and armed conflict wow that's quite a uh, by that point of course they were they were u.s citizens by yeah. the second world war Right. OK. And so when the US did join the war following the uh, Pearl Harbor attack in December 1941, Navajo men headed uh, to the reservation agency to sign up, uh, many bringing their own rifles as they were unfamiliar with how the US military worked. And yeah, as you say, they were fighting to protect the, their country against enemies, but they did not forget the long walk and what they'd been through. Yeah. Um, the whole process of signing up to join the army was quite a humiliating process for a lot of these young Navajo men. Three out of five Navajo men of military age couldn't speak English and nine out of ten were classified wow. illiterate and were just sent home. So eventually wow. the War Department was persuaded to set up training platoons for non-English speaking men who wanted to fight. So they'd be taught military English and then they would be mixed in with regular army regiments. Out of a total population of 55,000, uh, more than 3,600 Navajo joined the US Armed Forces in World War II. Wow. And more than 300 Navajo men gave their lives in total. Now, some of the Navajo men that joined uh, the fight in World War II were given a very specialist task. And these were the Navajo code talkers. Right. So codes, obviously very important in wartime, mm -hmm. uh, have been for thousands of years. If you're passing messages that can be intercepted, you just make sure that person intercepts them can't understand them, you know, yeah. that the codes can't be cracked. So we all know about Enigma and things like that, but yeah. I'd never heard of the Navajo code. So no. explain to me um, well, a bit more. Cryptograms are the most common form of code. A cryptogram is where letters in a message are replaced with other letters or symbols. So as long as the person receiving the message knows which letter or symbol stands for what, they can decipher the messages. Yes. But by the 90s, and this was a common way of passing messages. You just substitute letters and make sure the person who's receiving the message knows what you've substituted them for. 
Yeah, but then these 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 could be broken, couldn't they? Because they, yeah. they by the nineteenth century they they had frequency charts. They started to break these codes using frequency charts. If you knew the frequency of a letter in a given language, you could look at samples of code and work out what the ciphers were likely to be. So, for example, E in English occurs on average. 591 times every thousand words. That's a good statistic. Mm. So by studying the frequency of letters and code, you could work out what represented E. You did the same for other letters. So my dad, this is what my dad did in the war. He did not decoding, but he did taking the messages. Right. So every message, every message from the German that ended HH, standing for Heil Hitler. So they'd always know that those things at the end were HH, and that was their starting point. Yeah, that's it. You yeah. have a starting point. Once you know the frequency of each letter in a given language, yeah. you can really start to work out yeah. So while the Allies were getting good at deciphering codes, unfortunately, so were the Axis powers. Yes. So new codes were constantly being needed. So you couldn't just go, right, they, this is our code, we'll use it forever. They were being changed all the time, hence the Enigma machine and various different ways uh, ciphers were used. But codes obviously had to be distributed, they had to be learned, and they had to be deciphered. So the process wasn't always fast. Right. You get the message, and then to to write the message, you have to turn it into code, send it, receive it, turn it from code back into whatever language you need. So, you know, it's not fast enough in a war situation. You can't, I've cracked the code. The Germans are going to bomb the bridge. When? A week ago last Thursday. But it's no good. <laughs> right, yes. It's no yes. good. That's a, that would be me. That would be me. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Thanks, oh. thank you, O'Farrell, for your work on this. So I was, I was doing other things. <laughs> so there, this wasn't the first, um, you know, so the Second World War wasn't the first time this happened. It had been in World War One. they'd had other indigenous American people like um, Choctaw, Comanche, Cherokee. They'd been deployed as code talkers. Am I right? Yeah. So due to the, because obviously you you can't say, well, we'll, we'll use another language usually because there are too many speakers of most languages right. that, that the enemy's going to be able to learn the language or yeah. has people who know the language or whatever. So you can't go, oh, we'll very cleverly send our messages in French as if the Germans can't speak French. Right. However, obviously with indigenous American languages, they have relatively few speakers. So that seemed a way to send an unbreakable code in a in a language that the enemy couldn't possibly know. So they did use that in World War One. Right. The languages were used to transmit these tactical messages, but there were problems with that. A, because the vocabulary of these languages was quite limited when it came to military terminology. You know, your, your average Indigenous American, you know, living in wherever in the wilds of northern Canada didn't have words for tactical manoeuvres. Yes. And, you know, so these messages that weren't as quick to, to get across. And also, in these communities, there simply weren't enough young men of military age who spoke each language to effectively go to the war zones and communicate them. It just weren't enough. Yes, I get that. So, so in World War II, the war was being fought on intelligence reports, especially in the Pacific, Yeah, where the war wasn't being fought on one land mass, but between hundreds of little islands. Communication between them was hard enough in peacetime, let alone during war. Yeah, exactly. And so the key to victory in the Pacific was being able to deploy your troops on a strategic island without tipping off the enemy. So the side that can send messages most quickly about what the next moves are, where the enemy is, what's happening in the air, in the sea, they're going to have the advantage. Right. So by spring 1942, Japan is holding most of the Pacific down towards Australia. And the US has got its best minds on trying to devise this unbreakable code that they need to succeed in this particular area step forward a man called philip johnston that doesn't sound like a particularly uh, native american name 
No, he's not. He's uh, he's not a, a indigenous American, John. Oh, um, okay. Philip was the son of the of Protestant missionaries. <clears throat> and they worked with the Navajo. Um, so he'd grown up on the Navajo reservation and his friends growing up were Navajo children. And that meant he grew up understanding their culture, but more importantly, speaking their language fluently from the age of four. Ah. Yeah. Nine years old, little Philip Johnston, in 1907, he accompanied an official Navajo delegation to Washington, D.C. as their official translator at nine. That's amazing. That's a lot of responsibility for a nine-year-old, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when they laid out their demands, you were like, yeah, and they want a spaceship that fires laser rockets. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> So yeah, so by 1942, he'd be a bit older, I suppose. He'd, yeah, he'd, um, be like in his fifties. Yeah, he's fifty years old in 1942. He's a civil engineer for the city of Los Angeles, and okay. he knew that the Navajo language was virtually impossible to master, and it had some advantages over other languages that had been used by code talkers in the past, um, because between the wars during peacetime. The Germans right. found out that these indigenous American code talkers had been used in World War One. Right. And so they sent delegations of students to America to learn their languages as a sort of insurance policy for any future conflict. And they learned the languages that had been used and they were mainly Cherokee, Comanche and Choctaw and some other smaller languages as well. But they didn't go to the Navajo reservation. And because they knew the German students hadn't gone there and they hadn't learnt the language, they knew there was no other way they could have learnt Navajo because at this point it had never been written down. And it's before cassette tapes. Learn Navajo in just two weeks. Before cassette <laughs> Learn tapes. Learn Navajo in just two weeks. Exactly. There was no Duolingo <laughs> for Navajo in 1940s. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and it's apparently very grammatically complex, isn't yeah. it? It doesn't have any borrowed words from other languages. Uh, so when the Spanish introduced the horse into the area, Navajos came up with their own word, yeah. same with car and plane, either by combining existing Navajo words or, or just creating new words. Is that right? Exactly. Not like, you know, we just borrow words from other languages, but they yeah. never did that. And also, it didn't bear any real relation, Navajo, to other indigenous American languages. So although it was a part of this group that had descended from Alaska and um, yeah. northern Canada, whereas these other groups, their languages changed a lot more than the Navajo language did. And it's got a really lar unusually large, what they call a phoneme inventory. So a phoneme is like the basic unit of speech sound used in language. I knew that studying linguistics at university would come in handy one day. I love it when you tell me all this stuff. All this yeah. linguistic stuff is really interesting. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> so it's it, every, every little sound you make in speech is called a phoneme. So it can be broken down really precisely. And... Navajo language has a lot more than, say, English. Uh, it had lots of consonants that we don't even use in English. And also, it's a tonal language to a certain extent. Not in the, quite to the extent I don't think that, that certain other languages are. But it does mean that different tones denote different meanings. And also, in their sentence structure, in their syntax, subjects, objects and verbs have much more of a relationship on each other than they do in English. So, for example, the word dropped you would use a different word depending on what the item you dropped was, whether it was round or whether it was a stick. Wow. And, and everything that they do, so all of their sort of actions in their speech are related to the world around them. So in Navajo, you wouldn't say, I am hungry, but rather hunger is hurting me. It's how 
and outside influences. So it's all reflected. Okay, it's a different way of viewing the world, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It's, 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 there's a psych- different psychology to the language. Absolutely. And, and it's just this lovely, rich, complex language that's so unique compared to European languages. And also yeah. Navajo had loads of different dialects. Remember, 100 years before, there'd been these disparate groups. Um, yeah, yeah. So all, all of this meant that the only way that you could learn Navajo really was to live among it. And in 1940, there were fewer than 30 non-Navajo people who knew the language. I mean, we have tonal, we have different tonal meanings for the same words, don't we, here? I mean, if I go, Angela, you're a really good comedian. (laughs) <laughs> or, oh, Angela, you're a really good comedian. <laughs> it's completely different. But, but that's across a phrase, not across a word generally. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very subtle, but... So, yeah, it makes it hard to write down, I suppose. Yeah, so, yeah. anyway, I'm very interested in all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's very exciting. On linguistics. It's good. Um, by the time the US entered the war, so this is 1941, 55,000 Navajos, more than twice as many as the next largest group, Given them a larger pool to recruit men from because it's obviously the men. So the yeah. Navajo are the biggest sort of recognised tribe in the whole of the US. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about Philip Johnson then. So Philip Johnson, he served in World War One, so he knew the importance of code, and he believed that the Navajo language could provide an unbreakable code. Right. So he contacts the US Marines officers based at Camp Elliott in San Diego, and he tells them of this idea he's had to create a military code using Navajo. And they greeted him with scepticism at first. It had been tried in World War One. It hadn't been a great success yeah. for various reasons. But in February 1942, I think they probably fobbed him off and went, you know, yep, put together a proposal. We'll have a look at it, whatever. Right, yeah, And yeah. Um, in March that year, uh, they asked him to put together a demonstration of how this code might work. Okay. So he found four Navajo men uh, who were in the LA area and that were willing to help and uh, another Navajo soldier who was serving with the Navy in San Diego. So you have five of them. And he split them into two groups in separate rooms in this demonstration. Yeah. And they sent sort of military-style messages were passed between them in these two separate rooms. And the generals present were really impressed with the speed and accuracy in translating the messages from English to Navajo. Because obviously these men were bilingual. Right, yeah. So... They could send the message in Navajo and immediately translate. There was no, right, what's the code? Let me check the cipher. Let me, it was yeah. pretty immediate. Yeah. So John, he originally proposed like a 200-man program, didn't he? But yeah. because of some of the resistance from high up, it was a 30-man program eventually approved. Yeah. And then Philip Johnson accepts the challenge to organise the 382nd platoon of the US Marines for the pilot. Yeah, absolutely. So they, yeah, they go ahead with this pilot project because these generals have been so impressed by this demonstration. But like you say, a much smaller pilot than Johnson had proposed. So in April 1942, these Marines recruiters were dispatched to the Navajo reservation to find the 30 suitable candidates for the programme. They needed the most educated Navajos for the project. Right. Um, they needed to be bilingual and, yeah. uh, you know, able to translate so recruiters visited those government boarding schools at fort defiance in arizona fort wingate and shiprock in new mexico in order to recruit these candidates but of course the secret nature of the project meant 
that they couldn't tell the potential recruits exactly what they had in mind for them. Oh, wow. So many of the recruits are like, uh, no, you're all right, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we've got a job for you, a really important job. What is it? Can't say. Uh, yeah. 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 But in the end, they, they sort of liaised with the tribal council chairman, who was a man called Chi Dodge, and he put out a call on shortwave radio the next morning. Wow. And after he put out the appeal, these young Navajo men were queuing up to join. And in fact, some of them were so keen, they lied about their ages. There were some Navajos that joined the Marines when they were just 15. Wow. And some joined when they were much too old. They were like 36, John. Ugh. It's mad. I don't understand why you can't be 60 and doing this job. You're not going to be in the, you're not going to be carrying a gun over a trench, are you? Just... Well, you are. You're, you're landing on the beaches with the rest of them. Oh, I see. Yeah, you absolutely are. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. All right, well, I'll probably, that't gets me out of it. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a story that one of the guys ate a whole bunch of bananas to meet the weight requirement of 122 yeah. pounds? And, and when he was three pounds under, he drank four pounds of water. Yeah. Wouldn't want to be there for the outcome of that cocktail, I must say. No, no. That's it. People, after the appeal was made by tribal leaders, they were really keen to, to yeah. sort of put themselves forward. Um, they, they knew they were being recruited to be some kind of specialist, but didn't know what. And apparently those stories that some of them confused the word marine with submarine and uh, ended up quite disappointed. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. okay. But in the end, 30, 30 of them were chosen and they left for their basic training camp at San Diego. Uh, and the Navajo Code Talkers project is now underway. Now, the thing is, these men, a lot of them really had no or little to no contact with US society. They'd grown up on the reservation and so there were these huge culture clashes once they I got bet. to boot camp, you know, once they got to basic training. Yeah, yeah. 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 Apparently they had no sense of competition. It's just yeah. not something they ever did. So when there were boxing matches being organised between the troops, they were like, they could see no point in it. Yeah. You fight, only fight if you're fighting for something. Yeah, this speaks to me, this, John. This is why I hate games <laughs> lessons at school. Try harder, Angela. Why? So your team win. Is there a prize? No. Then I ask you again, Why? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be rubbish in our football team. Yeah, I, I really say. would. Yeah. For, for um, many reasons, not just my attitude. Well, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> well, the handball, he's the goalie. He's allowed to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be, you know, uh, Navajo are supposed to be mild-mannered and not aggressive, uh, and, uh, and they found their discipline hard. Yeah. Marine instructors took pride in their, their boot camp sort of uh, macho ways and showing no mercy to their new recruits and breaking them down. Yeah, we've all seen Private yeah. Benjamin. Oh, I love that film, Goldie Horn. Yeah. But that's it. It was okay. all the, yeah. you know, shouting yeah. at them and, shouting but, you know, the, the Navajos yeah. are like, all right, why are you shouting? <laughs> Calm right. down. Calm down. I mean, they were tough, weren't they? They were survivors. Yeah, yeah They were absolutely. used to hardship and having no food for days, but they didn't need to be broken down in training. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, a wartime issue of headquarters bulletin said, instructors could not think of any strenuous drill or forced march too tough for the Navajo, which is a compliment, absolutely. I suppose. The story of one exercise in the desert where they were doing this exercise alongside other Marine recruits who weren't Navajo. Yeah. And the Navajo recruits, they knew because of where they lived, how to tap desert plants for water. So they were able to just refill their canteens of water. And the other recruits obviously ran out of water and were thirsty and dehydrated. And because they didn't realise what the Navajo recruits were doing, they thought they must be superhuman. They're not drinking their water. They've all got full canteens at the end of it. Wow. Amazing. You know, so they had these survival skills because of their lives. Yeah, exactly. They, they weren't from downtown sort of LA or whatever. Yeah. So after finishing boot camp, the recruits were sent to Camp Pendleton to learn signals techniques, radio operating and how to send and receive messages. They studied Morse code, semaphore, wire laying, 
pole climbing. That seems, I suppose, how to put up telegraph pole. Yeah. And then how to put together and take apart bulky field radios. Yeah, I think we forget that sort of here. Like radio equipment in wartime wasn't, you know, could just slip it in your pocket. It was big, bulky, heavy equipment that you needed to transmit messages. It wasn't your iPhone 4, was it? No, exactly. So... Then the most important task, Angela, developing the code. Tell me about that. Yeah. So as part of Philip Johnson's proposal, he laid out plans that the code wouldn't just be simple translation. They'd learned in World War One that wasn't enough because the the languages didn't have a military vocabulary. So Yes. So the recruits set to work developing one before going into the war zone. So they as part of their training, they learned pages and pages of this military terminology and then they were given a vocabulary of 211 military words most likely to be used in the field of combat and they were then asked to create a Navajo equivalent of these words so we know Navajos have always done this we talked about this they don't borrow words they create their own yes as a crossword nerd I love this bit this is a bit of job I do (laughs) I'd be like, yeah, I'll do that. And then when it comes to boarding a troop ship to the Pacific, that's when I'd go AWOL. Right, okay. (laughs) But this bit, I'd enjoy. So the words they chose, they had four sort of basic rules for creating these new words. Right. And they were, the words had to have a logical connection to the term for which they stood. So they would use existing Navajo words that, that made it obvious what the word meant. Right, okay, yeah, I understand, yeah, yeah. They found that remembering these new words is easier if the code word is unusually descriptive or creative. So make it quite elaborate. Yeah. The code word had to be relatively short because time is of the essence. You know, you can't have the word for gun, meaning long, big, black metal thing that is carried by the man to the place and fire you know it's got to be I think you're doing, concise I think you're doing an accent little accent you're doing there Angela creeping in <laughs> I, sure. I definitely wasn't I was just thinking <laughs> of the feet <laughs> and of course they needed to avoid words that could be confused with other similar sounding words yes so no homophones also remember we spoke before the language is tonal in places but tone over a crackling field radio could very easily be misinterpreted. So they had to be careful not to have words that relied on tone for their meaning. Right. So they set about devising this sort of military vocabulary. So, for example, for the different Marine Corps, they gave them different Navajo clan names. So things like one was called the Bitter Water People. Okay. Or one was the Feather People. And so they just sort of allocated different clan names that already existed to the different Marine Corps. And then they set about translating those military words. We've got some examples of how they put things together. So aircraft, for example, all were given bird names. Right. So a dive bomber was a sparrow hawk. Okay. And then the bombs were eggs. Bombardment was iron rain. I have to say, Angela, this is like a racist Hollywood parody of an Indian chief talking. It's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, big uh, iron horse need to bring yellow metal to, to sitting this world. This is how they translated the words. Yeah, so one of the ones I saw when I was looking this up was uh, Adolf Hitler. Their word for him was crazy white man. Brilliant. Which I thought, well, they've gone straight to first base with that one. Doesn't narrow <laughs> it down, though, does it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, craziest white man, I suppose, yeah. would be better. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, there were some other good ones, weren't there? Yeah. Um, frog meant amphibious assault. They referred to the US as our mother um, because wow. in Navajo, families dominated by the mother's side, much like it is in my family, to be honest. And the army, who were rivals to the Marines, 
they re- they referred to the U.S. Army as dog faces <laughs> um, because that's the name that they gave to the U.S. Army in the Indian Wars of the 19th century. <laughs> Fair enough. So, Fair enough. Um, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's hilarious. But it does sound like sort of a parody of you know sort of uh, how we imagine Indians talking in Hollywood movies of the 50s. You know, yeah. uh, Iron Horse and Metal Bird and all that. Yeah. Um, but they came up also, didn't they, with an alphabet code. Uh, that works like a cryptogram. Yeah. Uh, new terminology and place names uh, come about uh, all the time in the war, of course. So they needed to be able to spell out words that didn't have a direct translation. Exactly. So it's all very well having these military terminology, but if you're in the field and suddenly there's a new type of bomber, or there's a new, they needed to be able to spell it out. Yeah. So the way that they did it was they would it, like a cryptogram. Really, they would take the English letter, think of a word that began with that letter in English but not in Navajo. Right. And then use the Navajo word to represent that letter. So, for example, for the letter A, they used the word Wallachi because that translated to the English word ant. Ah. See? So, okay. And then B was um, shush, which meant bear. Right. So it seems to me that might cause a problem, send someone to be quiet, and they think they're under a bear track. <laughs> shush. <laughs> shush. <laughs> but there's a, it's not that different to A for alpha, B for beta, you know. Lima, Delta. Well, well, it is it is because, obviously, the words they're actually using don't correspond. Right, of course, yes, yeah. yes. You'd have to, again, once again, you'd have to know the Navajo to get the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But because this was essentially a cryptogram, it meant it was also vulnerable to being deciphered with those frequency charts we talked about earlier. So once you work out, hang on a minute, they've used the word for E 531 times in a thousand words. That mu- that word must mean E. Right. So this became a problem during the war, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. New, new equipment and weapons coming out all the time. New tactics, strategies, terminology. They're all being spelled out. Yeah. So yeah, that, that made them vulnerable. So so the enemy's getting, you know, could get lots of samples of code in which they could work out the frequency. So during the war, the uh, headquarters in California, they expanded the original vocabulary to almost double its size. So the alphabet code didn't have to be used as much. And then they added alternate Navajo words for some of the more common English letters. So in the alphabet code now, instead of just having A is ant, Wallachie, they also added apple and axe so that they could choose which letters to use and it would mix it up a bit. So for the most common English letters, which are E, T, A, I, O and N, they had three potential Navajo words that could be used. Right. So if you had a word with two E's in it, three E's in it, you could use three different words. Right, I see. That's clever. Um, yeah. The next most common letters, S-H-R-D-L-U, they had two variations. So there was no normal pattern of frequency could be distinguished by the enemy. Right. Who, who you know, were listening in. Yeah, okay. That's a trouble to do with football teams. A for Arsenal, Aston Villa, Accrington Stanley. <laughs> for Black Brown Rovers but again me. John that's no good is it you don't understand it's no good because it stards with the letter that you're trying to decode it's not so a good we code all, John we haven't all got linguistics degrees <laughs> <laughs> so I did drama it's beginning studied, to show John yeah, I studied North Native American theatre uh, in the Quackyoodle Indigenous tribe. American um, John yeah, well back then it was the 80s <laughs> um, so back to the initial training the 30 code talkers were trained in an intensive four-week course, 176 basic training hours of basic training, which didn't include the time they spent studying and practicing. And they were they had to be able to instantly transmit messages from English to the Navajo code and back again with no room for error. A lot of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. And in the final two weeks of their uh, training, they did these simulated battle situations with radios 
and intelligence officers tried every way they could to try and break the code and they couldn't. They couldn't even transcribe it because they couldn't understand what these sounds were they were hearing. Wow. So let alone crack it. The Navajo recruits were promised that at the end of the training, they would be promoted to rank of private first class, which usually took new recruits in the Marines a year to achieve, but it meant a pay increase. Do you think it happened, John? Oh, I'm sure it did. I can't imagine the American government would ever say anything to the uh, Native Americans and not see that promise through. Am I right? Of course it didn't happen, no. <laughs> they were told a week before they finished their training, actually, we didn't mean that. You're not going to get that after all. God. But nevertheless, they didn't complain. 30 recruits began the programme, 29 finished it. Now it's time to put the plan into action. So we're going to take a short break there, I reckon. Yeah, that might be a good place to take a break. Uh, while John tries to retract his application to join the Marines, now we realise he's got nothing to do with submarines. <laughs> and we'll be back after this short word from our sponsors. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where we are talking about the Navajo code talkers of World War II. It's 1942. America come lately has joined the war. It's like, oh, right, we'll have a war since Hitler declared war on us. There'll be letters, and, John. Uh, <laughs> things are hotting up in the Pacific Ocean. The Allies desperately need effective codes. And the first wave of Navajo code talkers have completed their initial training. Angela, what happens next? Well, the programme was seen as such a success um, that it was expanded. Philip Johnson, despite being too old to qualify, was accepted into the Marines and he was charged with overseeing this now growing programme. So two of these new recruits were sent back to the reservation to recruit more code talkers. Um, many of the men were turned away who wanted to join up because their English wasn't good enough. But by the end of the war, about 450 Navajo men had been recruited for code talker training in the Marines. Wow. And only 30 of them failed to complete the course. Wow, that's great. So that's pretty amazing. And several of the original 29 were retained as instructors to teach the rest, while the rest were sent to the South Pacific, their first assignment. You'd, you'd want to be one of the ones that stayed behind, wouldn't you? You would, wouldn't you, rather going to the Pacific? Oh, go on then. I'll stay behind and teach the others. Go on then. The, the code talkers were not a separate fighting unit, weren't they? No, two or three no. talkers were assigned two units of all six Marine divisions. That's right. And uh, the code name for the Marines code talkers were Talker, Arizona or New Mexico. They were never to be referred to in the field as Indian or Navajo. Absolutely. They didn't have to worry about the terminology. Angela. They, they didn't, didn't worry to... about it so much in the 1940s, John. No, you're absolutely no. right. Um, <laughs> obviously, going to the Pacific is going to be very different to their training and in very many ways these recruits were very different to your average marines but here they are they're off to the pacific theater uh, which is not as much fun as it sounds i did see south pacific at the theater it's very good my favorite musical i reckon what a lot of great songs do you want me to sing any of the songs Please i'm don't. in love Please. i'm in love, I'm in love. <laughs> there is nothing like a dame yeah what a happy song happy talk keep talking no and uh, what, it has to be carefully taught <laughs> It's a great anti-racism song. We're in the we're in Sorry, the Pacific. We're in the Pacific. The attack on Pearl Harbor. Theater. Oh Jesus Christ! So okay. back to the Pacific theater. We don't talk much about what happened in the Pacific in our podcast, have we? We talked a lot. No, we haven't done that at all. No. So the attack on Pearl Harbor, obviously in December 1941, had killed more than 3,000 American soldiers, sunk five warships, destroyed hundreds of planes. So U.S. military strength in the Pacific by this point in 1942, was in tatters, really. That's why they were relying so heavily on intelligence. 
Japan, of course, then uh, ripped through the Pacific, targeting uh, resources and raw material-rich places, Philippines, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and attacked strategic U.S. military bases in the island chains, the Marshall Islands, Marianas, Solomon Islands, Gilbert Islands, to make uh, the inevitable U.S. counterattacks even harder. Yeah. Terrible idea, but they did it. They did. So in the summer of 1942, the Japanese had started to build reinforcements on the Solomon Islands. Uh, which would extend Japanese power even further into the Pacific. I should say I've written Atlantic there. But yeah, I didn't notice that. I, thought just, I was going to let you trip up and go, where? Where? No, see, I noticed as I went. So while the US um, weren't able to stage an attack on most of Japan's new territory in the Atlantic. Atlantic, they... you said it, yes. Oh, I said it. Why have I put Atlantic twice? I did this war. I mean, my head's all over the place. I didn't know idea that Japan invaded the Atlantic Ocean and took all the islands. <laughs> Shut um, up. But... But anyway, I'm they so thought tired. I was up so <laughs> late writing this. Right. They thought the carry on. So, they thought the Solomon Islands in the Pacific were very vulnerable. Japanese have built these reinforcements on the Solomon Islands, and the Solomon right. Islands were where the Americans thought they there was more vulnerability that they might be able to stage an attack yes. as opposed to yes. the other islands that the yes. Japanese yeah. occupied. A hurried plan was thrown together to attack the Solomon Islands. And those assigned to organise it, given less than five weeks' notice, uh, I need enough, that to organise me. I need that to meet my friends for coffee. Yeah, exactly. That's five <laughs> weeks' notice, not enough to organise an attack. And, and this is how underprepared it was. This attack. So there were these thousands of um, new recruits, right, to to the Marines. Yeah. Who were on a ship, thinking that they're heading to New Zealand and Australia to get their six months of combat preparation before going into war and suddenly they're reassigned while on their way to New Zealand and thrown right in the deep end. So That's terrible, isn't it? There was yeah. no time to get the desired equipment. The plan was criticised, was known as Operation Shoestring. Oh, great. <laughs> Imagine being that fresh-faced young recruit off to Australia for six months. You're going to learn to fight before going into the war and you get this message. It says, actually, we're sending you to a place called the Solomon Islands. You go, oh, that sounds nice. We'll get our training there instead then. Sort of. Um, it'll be what we call on-the-job training. Sorry, what yeah, now? Yeah, quite. Uh, here's your guns, but these are water pistols. Good luck. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. yeah. So the only uh, way this attack could be a success is if the Japanese on the island didn't know the Americans were coming. Yeah. So US command stopped giving out any kind of information. The landing forces assembled in waters off Australia didn't even know the name of their destination. No. So these US Marines are heading to the beaches of Wildle Canal on the Solomon Islands. Yeah. They're undersupplied. They're going to face an enemy who had never been defeated in a ground engagement. What could possibly go wrong? So air cover bombardment went in first, chased the Japanese forces into the hills. So when the Marines landed, there were no sounds of enemy guns and they took over an abandoned airstrip. Code talkers were in this first wave of the island assault. Yeah. But the US soon became overwhelmed because they've landed these 19,000 Marines on the beaches. Wow. And the equipment starts piling up and they, there's vessels sat offshore waiting to land more supplies that they're going to need. But there's not enough room on the beaches. They've sort of, so they're, they're kind of panicking and these boats are stacking up to try and get the supplies on. And that's when the Japanese bombers arrived. Oh, my God. So US commanders withdraw their supply ships that contain the artillery and the bulldozers and the food that the Marines yeah. uh, needed for when they landed. They're stranded with no air or naval support in an island in the middle of the sea, controlled by the Japanese Navy, with just 37-day supply of food. It's not ideal. The sort of thing that Bear Grylls would make a 
a TV show about on Channel 4. Yeah, absolutely. So they're in this dense tropical forest. They've got no aerial scouting reports. They're surrounded by bogs and seven-foot-high grasses. And their radios are their only link with the command and support vessels. And this is exactly the kind of situation that the Navajo code talkers have been trained for, right? This is why they're there. The Japanese are going to easily intercept any radio communications from this small island. So the Navajo speakers are the only way they're going to be able to make contact and get information safely without being intercepted. Right. So the code talkers are split up among the different patrols. Yeah. And one of the first nights after they'd all found out, one of the code talkers sent a coded message to another. Brilliant. This is going to save the day. Ah, Unfortunately, John, no. Because there were some unanticipated consequences they hadn't quite trained for, the Code Talkers. Um, for a start, Marine Command had been tight-lipped about the Code Talker programme, right? For obvious reasons. They don't want the enemy knowing that they've got this programme. So within the Marines, it was on a need-to-know basis. So only a few of these thousands and thousands of men in the field knew about the Navajo Code Talkers, who they were and what they were for. So this meant that when the code talkers in this dire situation start sending messages to get information, to get support, other US soldiers, they could just hear foreign people talking on the US military radios. And for all they knew, that language was Japanese. Oh, no. I bet no one had even thought of this possibility. That's no. a disaster. So these rumours start flying around, or as they call it in the Marines, scuttlebutt, which is their term for unconfirmed reports, which I think is a lovely word. These rumours start spreading like wildfire that the Japanese are using American radios. And the assumption was, and it spread, that the Japanese must have overrun some marine positions and stolen their radios. Wow. So commanding officers are trying to restore calm. And in order to do this, they tell the Navajos, you've got to stop sending messages because it's throwing the entire command into panic. Oh, no. Which kind of defeated the whole point of them being there. There's foreigners talking. There's foreigners talking. Yeah. That's like, yeah, the whole BS is supposed to be foreigners talking. There are code guys. Yeah, that, but yeah. Then, that wasn't the only issue, was it? No, because many Marines, they didn't know about the Navajo code talkers, which most of them didn't. If they came across one in the field, they thought they were Japanese because they thought they looked Japanese. I suppose they just never seen a Native American. Lots of them from the cities of America would, you know, yeah. see someone with slightly dusky skin and... Um, a different look and they would go oh that's that's the enemy because they didn't have the tv that we have now they hadn't seen the film so yeah it feels a bit racist but yeah. you know they wouldn't uh, know what a japanese person necessarily looks like and wouldn't necessarily yeah. know what a navajo person dark hair dark skin oh is he, is, he, is he the enemy yeah yeah and especially in the heat of battle you've got no time to closely study faces if you think yeah you know i mean you think maybe that the uniform would give away but i suppose japanese soldiers could have stole if they've stolen their radios they've stolen their uniforms right that's yeah what a disaster. And yeah. also there was this, because Japanese soldiers were trained really to resist to the death. You know, they yes. were, they didn't yes. surrender easily. So yes. US soldiers are much more likely to shoot them dead quickly rather than try to capture them because the longer they, yeah. you know, they could end up being killed. So, yeah. so it was a real danger. What a disaster. So even, and so even when the Marines had become used to the presence of code talkers, it was difficult when they joined US army units on the battlefield who had no idea about the code talkers. It yeah. made the code talkers really vulnerable to friendly fire and capture. Yeah. So after a number of these close calls, many Marine units started to assign bodyguards to protect the code talkers from these confused American soldiers. Right. So everywhere a code talker went, he would be accompanied by a Marine whose job was basically to go, it's all right, he's one of us. 
That's hilarious. Yeah. What a but waste of a soldier. According yeah. to Bill Toledo, he's one of the second group of code talkers um, after the original 29 that were trained. These bodyguards also had a secret secondary duty. Now, there's not a lot of evidence. No one's really sure about how true this is. However, that terrible Nick Cage film I talked about is about this. Yeah. Their secondary duty was if their charge, their code talker they were guarding, was at risk of being captured... They were to sh they were to shoot him dead to protect the code. Oh, nice! Because obviously, if a code talker is captured, captured, of course, he yeah. could then tell the enemy about the code. So their own bodyguard, wow, allegedly was was told if you're captured, shoot him dead because he wow. knows the code. Yeah, there's no evidence it ever happened, but like I say, that's what this Nicolas Cage film is about. Imagine having a brilliant story to tell about these amazing people doing amazing things and that's what you centre it on, the white bodyguard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you said still that. angry about it. Yeah. It's a, sounds good, film. I'm going to watch it. Please don't. Please don't watch it. Actually, you look at the reviews of it, it's absolutely terrible. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, a few, so a few Marine officers felt the code talkers were more trouble than they were, didn't they? Yeah. And some completely misunderstood their purpose and used them as message runners through enemy lines. In fact, I think some of them were killed that way. Is yeah, that right? yeah. As one officer refused to use them until it could be proved they were better than his current code. So he was using something called white code, which involved a sort of mechanical device with a revolving cylinder to translate messages into a code to get the cryptogram. And uh, he was insistent that that's going to work better than Navajo code. So they huh. they set up a contest right. between two Navajo code talkers and two Marines using white code. And in four and a half minutes, the Navajos had completed a 100% accurate transmission of the message, <laughs> while the other team was still trying to write their message in the initial code. Excellent. That'll teach you. So that shut him up. <laughs> so it's December 1942, and the US finally gets control of Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands. And the leader of the expedition recognised the support of the code talkers and ordered 83 more for his division. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hard life, of course, for the Navajos in the field, um, not just because they risked being shot by their own people, but there was a real culture clash and many conflicts in the field of battle with their belief. Like we said, they were quite a peaceful people, really. And one of the problems they had was their attitude to death right. in Navajo. And according to the book I read, they weren't any more afraid of dying than other cultures, but they were afraid of things that were already dead. So they believed that things that were dead were evil. They believe when you die, only your evil part lingers on earth with your body after death and it returns to your place of dying to terrorise the living. Okay. So in their culture, when somebody died, their names were never mentioned again. Even That's right. Even your loved ones. Yeah. And dead bodies, if, if you died in a house, dead bodies had to be removed from the house via the north window. North apparently is the direction of evil. Um, well, as two Southerners sitting here, we better not make any jokes about probably that. Probably shouldn't, no. <laughs> and sometimes if someone died in their home, they'd just burn the whole house to the ground. I mean, I mean I'll be honest, <laughs> I've been tempted to do that when the washing up piles up. But, but yeah, I would say, Angela, that in a war situation, I'd say death is one of those things that's going to pop up every now and then. Yeah. Uh, they're sort of going to be surrounded by it and have to get you to... I, I think they have to sort of snap out of this silly nonsense is what I'd say to them. <laughs> Is, is that would that be the fair thing you to should say? have worked in one of the boarding schools That's, um, yeah yeah it was yeah. it was a thing they just had to overcome and it was a real right. culture clash for them a lot of them carried these pouches um that were stuffed with corn pollen that they believed gave them protection and back home on the reservation people would carry out these religious rituals to bless the navajos that were at war they Prayer feathers were planted for them. 
special protective songs were sung. And many of the code talkers believed that that's the reason they survived was because of the people back home. Yeah, yeah. So the US strategy in the Pacific was known as island hopping or leapfrogging. Instead of trying to capture every single island in a chain, they'd be strategic about it and try and occupy islands, you know, uh, alternately. And that would cut off the supplies to the Japanese. Yeah. And the code talkers were key in organising these attacks. Because like we said, the Japanese could easily intercept radio communications, but they could hear it. They couldn't work out how to transcribe them, let alone decode them, because it's this language, these sounds they'd just never heard before. Absolutely. So the Island Hot campaign allowed the clearing of the Mariana Islands to build airstrips for the new long-range bombers, the B-29s. But uh, the way back from bombing raids on mainland was still too long. and The aircraft still had to ditch in the ocean. The US needed to capture an island between the Marianas and Tokyo. They needed Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima is a tiny little island which is occupied by the Japanese and it's a problem because their aircraft spotters were able to spot bombers that were on raid from the Marianas. Yeah. So if the US had it, their bombers would be able to take off and reach the mainland without being spotted and also would have somewhere for damaged bombers to land on the way back from raids rather than ditching in the sea. Yes, so Iwo Jima means sulphur island. It was like a craggy island jutting out of the water about five miles long, two and a half miles across the widest point. Um, It was defended by 22,000 Japanese soldiers led by General Tadamichi Kuribayashi. Well done, uh, Thank you. (laughs) I had to take a run up at that. Who knew it needed to be defended to the death. Um, And US planes bombed it for 74 days straight. But by the end of that, the defences were stronger than when they'd started. So in February 1945, the largest force of Marines ever committed to action heads to Iwo Jima. It's one of those famous battles of yeah. the uh, Pacific War, the most famous, I would say, yeah. and um, pretty hellish by all accounts. Absolutely. So while they're waiting for the attack, they're on uh, warship USS Cecil, the people on high were still a bit sceptical. Right. Despite them having proved their worth, they still couldn't quite believe these Navajo guys were going to save the day. So once again, they were tested by those who didn't quite have faith. So on the ship, waiting to go in, they're, they're undergoing these tests. They were pitted against Marine signals officers to see who could transmit messages. And of course, the code talkers won easily. And so they were given responsibility for communicating all orders and information on Iwo Jima once they landed. Absolutely. So 8.30 a.m. February the 19th, 1945, the first wave of uh, 1,400 Marines were ready to go in to clear out the beachhead and the code talkers would come in with the next wave of soldiers. Yeah. And at first on landing, they met hardly any resistance. The Japanese general, he's learnt from previous island attacks, let them land. All right. You saw what happened on the Solomon Islands. Let them land, wait till the beaches are crowded with Marines and their supplies and then attack when they've got nowhere to run or hide. That's horrible, isn't it? But yeah. During all this, the code talks were setting up radios and they went to work. Uh, they directed gunfire from ships and planes, relayed messages from air observers about enemy hazards and told fellow Marines where artillery fire from US ships was aimed so they could avoid friendly fire. And they could do this really quickly. You know, yeah. this was really, yeah. Pretty much instantaneously, yeah. almost, you know, yeah. compared yeah. to other codes, yeah. forms of crypts and code. Yeah. Um, an officer of the 5th Marine Division, he later said that during the chaotic first 48 hours, his command post had six Navajo radio units working round the clock, 
and they sent and received 800 messages without error. Wow. And the Americans thought the the battle would take a week or 10 days, but it took nearly a month before they'd captured Iwo Jima on March the 16th. More than 6,800 US soldiers died. Terrible. Yeah. 20,000 others were wounded and nearly all the Japanese defenders perished. Yeah. But the US command believed that capturing Iwo Jima saved more US lives than it ended. And damaged bombers made 2,251 landings on Iwo Jima, along with uh, 27,000 crewmen. A lot of statistics here. Uh, many of whom would have died if they hadn't landed there. So, yeah. yeah. So then in August 1945, uh, they're in Okinawa, where a Navajo code talker receives the news of the Japanese surrender following the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so the war in the Pacific is over, pretty much. Major Howard Connor, signal officer of 5th Marine Division, said, were it not for the Navajo code talkers, the Marines never would have taken Iwo Jima. Well, that's amazing. Quite something, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it was also said that the war was cut short, they think, by an estimated year because US intelligence managed to break Japanese codes, but they could never break the Navajo code. Amazing. So obviously the Navajo code talkers returned to the US as heroes, remunerated for their sacrifice, they awarded handsomely for everything they did to save American lives. Am I right, Angela? Not exactly, no, John. No. Okay. Um, back on the reservation... I think it's fair to say that some of them that stayed in the Marines did better than the ones that went home. Right. Some stayed and continued a career in the Marines, but most of them went back to the reservation after the war, where they were welcomed back, obviously, by the Navajo people. And there were lots of ceremonies were performed to sort of cleanse them from what they'd been through. They the Singing was a really important ritual in Navajo culture. And they had uh, sort of leaders that would conduct these songs to cleanse there was a song they sang that was let the white way of life and death be now cast out of you great lyric um and and they were treated with great respect by their own people and in fact one of the navajo nation's first chairman peter mcdonald had been a code talker peter mcdonald was his name was it yeah i know well yeah that's a whole other (laughs) podcast about how indigenous people uh got their names yeah we're not going to do that one no (laughs) but unfortunately what they did had no impact on how they were treated by US society. They returned home and found themselves sent back to the reservations and back at the bottom of society, really. Wow, terrible. And the operation was kept secret, of course, because US knew it might be needed to use them again in future conflicts. So they couldn't be yeah. celebrated publicly. No, exactly. Um, it's thought they might have been used in Korea and Vietnam. Navajos were modest and did as they asked and kept their secret. So their achievements couldn't be shouted about. Until this podcast, of course, you know, breaks the whole story. Uh, I don't know. I'm not very convinced they would have been shouted about anyway in 1940s America. No, I'm not convinced. I mean, some some states, indigenous people still couldn't vote, you know, so right. I'm not sure how yeah. celebrated they would have been, even if it hadn't been yeah. secret. Um, and for example, there was the GI Bill, which was supposed to help American soldiers to buy property and stuff when they returned. Yeah. Co-talkers were supposed to be given support to buy homes, but they couldn't because technically the land on the reservations was leased to the Navajo by the US government. So they couldn't prove to a bank that anyone they wanted to buy land or houses from actually owned the land or houses. So the, oh the bill was no good to them. And, and you know, it, even today, it's not like they're, these people that played such a massive role were often mentioned in accounts of the war in Pacific. Neither you or I had heard of them. No, no. And the, the operation, but the operation was declassified in 1968. Yeah. So obviously that's when they could be celebrated and thanked for what they'd done. Well, John, in 1971, so declassified in 68, three years later in 1971, Nixon got round to giving them a certificate of appreciation. Oh, 
Ah, oh, it's great getting a certificate, isn't it? Isn't That's, it? That makes up for everything, getting a certificate. Doesn't thanks, it just? Thanks, Dickie. And then in 1982, Ronald Reagan declared August the 14th Navajo Code Talkers Day. You've got, now you've got a day and a certificate. You're laughing. I mean, it's like that makes up for everything. You can't have a house, but, you know. <laughs> it wasn't until 2000, year 2000, that President Bill Clinton signed a law which awarded the Congressional Gold Medal to the original 29 Code Talkers. Oh, that's good. But, I mean, still would rather have a house. If I'm well, honest. yeah. And also, those medals weren't actually presented to them until 2008. Oh, no, he's gone by then, isn't he? By George W. Bush. And there was a bit yeah. of a problem because only four of the original 29 Code Talkers were still alive by then. Oh. Yeah, it yeah. took 63 Six... years for those still alive to be given their congressional medals. Isn't that not really much that's, you can say that's, about that? Is that's it? Not, no, it's not, there's not a lot. No. Um, and it's, well, there's an incredible irony in this story that the very people who have forcibly tried to eradicate a language had their asses saved by the language they wanted to eradicate. Mm. Bit of a warning from history there about the strength in having different cultures and not forcing assimilation. Something to take away, listeners. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, so that's a very interesting story. Thank you, Angela. For, yeah, um, I really enjoyed learning about these people. It, yeah, was such a, it was such a little story. I'd never, you know, I'd never heard of them. There's not much out there about them. So um, It's good. And you managed to compress the book down to uh, four and a half hours of narration, which is amazing. <laughs> so that, that's good. Next time, just read the book out, Angela. <laughs> um, oh, John. Uh, I like context. What can I you say? Do, you do, you do. People love my people long episodes. Like, well, that's for if you've got a long journey, just look out for Angela's ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's very interesting. I was fascinated by it. I didn't know anything about it. And um, the idea that this language is so different to how we imagine languages being meant that there's no way to uh, just you know, swap that letter for that letter. It's just a whole different way of thinking, yeah. and a whole different way of having tonal language. I loved all that stuff. So yeah. I'm educated. You've educated me, Angela. Yeah. Um, and, I knew that um, enough for one day, John. I knew one day I'd yeah. educate you. <laughs> so we're going to do something completely different next week. Might be back in, um, might be back in Europe. We might, who knows where we'll who be. Knows? But um, I, I say you're saying this, John. Like, do you know where we're going? Because I don't. <laughs> I've got my, I've got my books. Remember? Oh yes, okay. I remember now where we're yeah. going. Okay, yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's more your sort of area, actually. Yeah, very much. So. Um, but look, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, yeah. Thank you for your reviews, your stars. We've got quite a high star rating, I have to say. It's yeah, very, we're very, very proud gratifying. of our star rating. Thank you very, for that. And yeah. it does help, believe it or not, giving us a little five-star review. So please do Stops do that. Stops us getting sacked from our Uber job. Um, <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. We shouldn't chat for too long because... Because um, the podcast lasted three days. <laughs> it's a three-day long podcast anyway. <laughs> but um, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone. And... Um, Tell us what you think on Twitter. See you next time. Bye. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs>